Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This podcast may contain explicit language, and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Democrats, or some half of the Democrats, half minus Moulton and minus C-Stack, will debate tonight in Detroit. Not joining them on stage, but providing the interstitial entertainment will be this guy. Hi, I'm Tom Steyer. I'm running for president. He's running for president. Because what will CNN viewers be desperate to see after seeing 20 people who are running for president, most of whom they'd never consider voting for? Some other guy running for president who they would never consider voting for. Tom Steyer will be buying up a copious amount of ads in between the candidates debating. He wasn't allowed there in Detroit because he didn't get in early enough. He might not be allowed in the next debate because he might fail to get the requisite 130,000 unique donations to his campaign to be a billionaire president. I think that donor list should be used as a reverse poll tax. You are crazy enough to donate to a billionaire running for president whose only qualification for president is that he's a billionaire? Sorry, you can't vote. Now, along with the Steyer for President ads, viewers will also be seeing ads from this organization, Need to Impeach. Here was an ad they ran last year. He's brought us to the brink of nuclear war, obstructed justice at the FBI, and in direct violation of the Constitution, he's taken money from foreign governments and threatened to shut down news organizations that report the truth. If that isn't a case for impeaching and removing a dangerous president, then what has our government become? Okay, fine, but who is the guy with the quite pleasant voiceover chops? I'm Tom Steyer, and like you, I'm a citizen who knows it's up to us to do something. What? More Tom Steyer. Of course, in the need to impeach ads, Tom Steyer, he's always the star of them, by the way, Tom Steyer is usually sitting down with an unusual camera angle that I have found in the past to reveal too much crotch. There is... A little more thigh. He's not usually shot from, say, the waist up. We get the crotch area in many of the need to impeach ads. I find it also very off-putting. Maybe the need to impeach ads and the discomfort they cause actually explain his candidacy. So the theory would go like this. Tom Steyer and his people think that there can be only one thing that would make the need to impeach ads something other than the worst thing on television. So they created the Tom Steyer for president ads. In fact, the whole campaign, just to bump up those need to impeach crotch centric ads one slot. 
In either case, Tom Steyer will be extremely present during both these debates, having bought ad time with the limited slots that CNN is putting up for bid. You realize, of course, this is something of what they call a moral hazard. If CNN creates rules that exclude Tom Steyer, then Tom Steyer will just pay money to appear in ads on CNN. They have every incentive not to allow him to appear. I guess what this adds up to for me is that Seth Moulton and Joe Seastack really have no argument that CNN is out to get them for reasons other than the obvious reason no one wants to watch them on TV. And that's without them even saying the three most off-putting words in democratic politics. I'm Tom Steyer. On the show today, I spiel about a cadre of politicians, at least eight years Tom Steyer Sr., the septuagenarians. But first, there are two premier political consultants turned pundits who've been on the just before, each with their own political podcast. But now, Radio Free GOP and the Axe Files have in a sense merged, become one, joined glorious forces, risen up stronger than ever before. The new podcast with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy is called Hacks on Tap. They're here on The Gist to talk about the debates and a certain orange fellow who seems rather sore at Baltimore right now. to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on and it's not just how good it looks it's everything that can do for those who embrace the impossible the defender 110 is up for the adventure this iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design the exterior which won me over is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing the interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Mike Murphy and David Axelrod are two of the preeminent political consultants of our age. And I want to disclose that I have voted for a candidate that each of them has backed. Barack Obama twice, that was David Axelrod's candidate. And in the New York State Senate race, I voted for Rick Lazio. I regret the vote. Hillary Clinton turned out to be good, but I was very upset with the whole carpet bagging issue. Mike yeah. Murphy from the right-ish, David Axelrod from the left, or at least eight years ago he was, now who knows what, have a new podcast together. It's called Hacks on Tap, and every week they talk about our apparently never-ending political and presidential race. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Good to well, have you. Thank you for to having be here. us. Absolutely. So... The first question I have is, as soon as the podcast was announced, among journalism circles, 
there was this question, hacks? I thought hacks meant journalists, but apparently among political consultants, you guys call yourself hacks too? I did not know that. Well, I was a journalist before I was a political consultant, so I'm covered on both hands. I don't know what Murphy's excuse is. <laughs> You're a double hack. I am a double, I'm double hacked. Political consultants in our world, uh, political hack is a term of endearment, believe it or not. So uh, it's, it's pretty common. You know, I think that, uh, but it isn't always a term of endearment. I think that there are some in sort of the League of Women Voters world and political reform world who who view people who do politics for a living as as hacks. But if you're there, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why Murphy and I get along well is that we both got into it uh, out of belief. And, um, you know, you can be a kind of career campaign warrior and still believe in what you're doing as something larger than a business opportunity. I certainly did. Well, I also think, and we, we saw this with uh, Beto O'Rourke proudly proclaiming not to employ pollsters and not to employ consultants. And to me, that is like saying, I want to be the CEO of the most complex corporation in America, but I want to eliminate two departments, I don't know, to stand on some sort of principle that communicates something to someone. I don't really understand that. Well, it's not working out so well for him. Uh, <laughs> that is true. He probably needs a couple of consultants to help him with the withdrawal here in a few months if he doesn't turn it around. It, it's like turning off your radar. Um, polling is how people talk to you who aren't your friends or relatives. And, you know, not all political consultants know what they're doing, and we all make mistakes, but experience has a value. One of the things when you hire a good consultant you get is the knowledge gained from all their last mistakes. So, you know, it's kind of a cute thing to say, but uh, it, it's a pretty tough league in the presidential races, and you might want to have somebody who's been there before. Yeah. And it does also seem to me that proudly proclaiming I will not work with a pollster or a consultant uh, seems to convey strength, but it really conveys weakness because what you're saying is I, as the uh, chief of this organization, won't even know how to perform triage, and I won't even know how to, say, discount a poll or a consultant when it needs to be discounted. But I wonder, and this brings me to another self-aggrandizing but maybe actually smart tactic, to proclaim, I will not take money from certain sorts of people or certain sorts of PACs. It seems to be uh, de rigueur among certain candidates. Do you think it's a strong move? Uh, it certainly seems to be a risky move. Do you think it's a strong move or do you think it's mostly about outward appearances? I think symbolically there is value to that. In, in practice, there is a sort of paradoxical message, which is I'm not, I'm not strong enough to resist the influence of of donors. Let's take Elizabeth Warren, who I, I deeply admire the campaign she's running. I think she's running the best campaign of all the Democratic candidates. And one of the things she's done is she's made a, a, a virtue out of what was a liability, which was she wasn't going to raise a lot of money from high-end donors. And so she has eschewed contributions uh, from high-end donors. She's not doing fundraisers. She's raising all her money online. But the fact is she ran for the United States Senate twice, and she did do, the, do those things. And I would venture to say that she would say she was not influenced by those dollars, that she did what she thought was right regardless. Um, so symbolically, it's important because there is too much money in the system, and there is too much special interest influence over Congress. And it is kind of an ab abominable that 
members of Congress have to spend half their time uh, making these calls and raising uh, money that way. But but I do think there's you know a lot of this is symbolism because if you're a strong person, you're going to resist that temptation. You know it's funny because it's tricky if it's done cynically. Uh, it's a really bad idea. You have less money and you don't get any credit. I'm reminded of the great scene uh, from the wonderful movie, The Great McGinty, where the candidate rushes into the political bosses when they're in power, who's reading a newspaper that says, uh, reform ticket surges. And the candidate says to the boss, we're in trouble, the reform ticket surging. And the tired old boss, played by the great Akeem Tamaroff, puts down the paper and says, you idiot, I am the reform party. <laughs> so people are, are looking for that cynicism. But as much as the Elizabeth Warren drives me crazy as a conservative. She does live her argument. And so this is, as David said, who she's been. I mean, yesterday she was taken on Raytheon, a great American company in my view, but one based in her state. So um, if you're like her and you're totally committed to it, you believe it and you do it every day, it, it can be powerful. But that's rare. Too often it's just a gimmicky tactic, a process issue. Do we have sufficient evidence that the Joe Biden of 2019 possesses the savvy, the rhetorical skills, the, the quick synapse mental processing to do what it takes to beat back criticism and win the race? I think the, the answer is no. I, 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 and I think this campaign is really important to him. Uh, he has to go out. There is something associated with being 76 years old. People don't like to talk about it. But he'd be 78 when he became president, 80 mid, midway through his term. And people understand that there's a tremendous toll. If you're doing the job and you're not sitting on your bed eating cheeseburgers and watching cable TV all day, it's actually a really taxing job. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the campaign is so important for Biden. They made a mistake early. They're trying to remedy it a little now by kind of sheltering him from a lot of uh, interaction with particularly the media. I think he has to go out there and blow it out and show that he's got the energy and the gumption that is necessary for the job. Uh, and if he doesn't, you know, I, I think the wheels are going to fall off of this, uh, of, of this uh, front-running car. Yeah, he's been a slow pony out of the gate. The next debate is critical for him because he, he, he's got to show he can run or he just may not be what they're looking for at this time. And once they've decided that about you, there's, it's very hard to get out of that, that situation. Do you think that Buttigieg peaked too early, or given how early the coverage no. and the race is, is there going to be a bunch of peaks and valleys here? I just had him on my, I just had him on my uh, Axe Files TV show on CNN, and um, I asked him that. And, um, you know, he, he said, look, uh, you know, the last thing you want to do is, you know, have a great, uh, you know, April and May before the uh, actual voting uh, begins. But what it has done, and he did have a little bit of a setback in part because of some of the, the racial issues in South Bend, but I think also because Kamala moved up mm -hmm. uh, on the strength of her debate performance and probably took a few points from him in the process. But what that early burst did for him was allow him to raise $25 million in the second quarter. I know you just did a show on money in the campaign, and it, it may be dry and uninteresting to people. But the fact is, if you have it, there's lots that you can do in terms of building organization on the ground, which he desperately needs to do. And, you know, that will enable him to do it. So, it, you know, 
Yes, there is a danger of peaking too soon, but there's also a great advantage in having the money he needs to move forward. Yeah, he is the only natural one percenter who's broken into the top tier of the race. He's at the bottom of the top tier, but he made it there. And even though, you know, we're all paying such attention because we're obsessed with this, of course, in the actual voter campaign, it's just beginning now, and it builds logarithmatically to Iowa and New Hampshire. And if you look at the Iowa and New Hampshire polling, he is alive and well and kicking. Now, that doesn't mean he'll get all the way, but he's done a terrific job of just getting into the race, which has turned into money, as Ax said, and money in campaigns is speech, and that is an organization. So that'll allow him to go compete with the bigger candidates. So he's already done something amazing. Whether or not he'll be the nominee or not is a big question. He tends to only draw from one part of the party right now, but he's got time and skills and money to do something about it. What does Tim Ryan and Seth Moulton get out of still being in the race that Eric Swalwell didn't? A campaign debt. (laughs) They can also uh, have the experience of uh, eating a fried Twinkie at the Iowa State Fair, which I can attest to is a great experience. But, you know, I I think that they, uh, first of all, I think Ryan sees an opportunity to seize that center-left, economic populist, kind of social moderate lane for himself. Uh, I also think he, both of them have been uh, strong uh, opponents of, uh, of Nancy Pelosi in the House, which doesn't position them well, at least in the short term, in that institution. So maybe this is a way out of there. They're both, they're both good guys. They're talented. They have something to say. But there are, you know, two-thirds of the candidates in this race, you, you kind of scratch your head and say, what are they doing here? And I'm sorry, Marianne Williamson, for saying that. Uh, but, uh, you know, on Ryan, I think he's, he's opening a little store for vice president. The argument is, look, I'm a lunch pail Democrat. That's a vanishing but critical breed. I'm from Ohio. If we can do well in Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, we're going to win the presidency. So I, I think he's, uh, he's trying to get himself uh, beyond the congressional level and into the consideration list a little bit there. And he is a kind of a charismatic you know, campaigner. There, there's a case for somebody like that to be on their ticket. I just don't think he'll ever be nominated. I don't know. Do, well, Biden actually only got 1% in Iowa and ended up as the VP. I was going to say, does crashing and burning, you know, in Iowa uh, make you more likely to be the vice presidential nominee? But there is the Biden example. There are fewer opportunities. You know, it's highly likely that he doesn't make the debate stage in September, where I think you're going to see seven to nine candidates, not 20, Mm -hmm. appear. And so that makes it a little bit harder to leverage yourself forward. Yeah, no, you have to get out at the right time. That That's part of it. I, I agree. You can't go actually prove you have no voter appeal. This would be a good thing for us to work on, Murphy, like a an op-ed, sort of a manual on how to get out gracefully at the right time. <laughs> Yeah, like an instruction book. Exactly. The, the Swan Dive by yeah. Axelrod Murphy. I, yeah. I sell I sell a market. Yeah, I smell a market. With little illustrations like the uh the like the choking sign, but you know how to <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, when Lamar Alexander, my old friend, ran the second time for president and, and quickly uh, lost after having a pretty good long shot uh run in ninety five, he called me up and said, I think I'm gonna write a book about running for president uh and getting out early called Toast. <laughs> which I actually thought would have been pretty good. You know what? But he did advance the cause of 
plaid shirts. <laughs> and uh, that's something, right? He left a legacy. That's good. American-made plaid shirts, my friend. <laughs> he, he doubled up Phil Graham in 96 in Iowa. He <laughs> did. That's true. <laughs> and look, I, I worked for Lamar and John McCain, two famous long shots. And the truth is, uh, Lamar in 95 came every bit as close as McCain to. We were a whisper away from knocking Bob out of the nomination race. But anyway, this is the kind of thing we like to do on Hacks on Tap. Old stories with references almost nobody will get anymore. But uh, <laughs> po- politics is a, a fun journey, and you the, the memories and war stories are the best part. Are you kidding? You dropped uh, Alan Cranston and Lamar Alexander. Alexander, do you know what that's going to do for my ratings? <laughs> oh, Ruben Askew. How, how's that for gold? There are a couple of senior homes in Miami. It's going to ring the bell. If you say Ernst Hollings, we've got the trifecta. There are a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands who remember those guys. So this could be really good for you. <laughs> okay, so we've talked all about the Democrats. Here is my question with uh, the Republican. If you had his cards to play, which means I'm not going to say that he has a totally different person personality. But if you had his cards to play and also his total amorality, would you essentially do what Trump is doing? Or do you think that it's in a way a wise strategy just to do whatever you can to sow division for as long as you can? Well, I think for Trump, it's the only strategy because it's driven by his personality. I always say he's the atomic clock of being Trump. He can't change. I mean, if he were a stereotypical, normal Republican with this economy, he'd be doing pretty well. What the truth is, his polling numbers are awful. And in every voter test we've had since he was sworn in, the Republicans have done poorly. Country's trying to fire this guy. So being Trump and only being able to be Trump, I would do, repugnant as it is, exactly what he's doing, which is trying to start the biggest, ugliest, race-based cultural war he possibly can. And the danger for the Democrats, and Axe has talked eloquently about this, is being lured into being the stock villains in Trump's uh, jaded game here and taking the bait, which so far they've done a lot of. He is the atomic clock, and, it, and he's always one minute before midnight. Uh, I mean, that's where he lives. I think in, in Trump's mind, he thinks that all the experts who uh, wring their hands about his tactics were the same people who said he couldn't get away with what he got away with last time, and he thinks that's what got him elected. So uh, Mike's right. That's who he is. That's what he's going to do. And, uh, you know, look, a few things. One is um, he has never – he's the only president in history of polling – who's never been above 50% favorable in the entire history of his presidency. Uh, and so, and he, he, you know, he, he lost the popular vote last time. Um, even in these, in these battleground states, he's underwater in terms of his favorable now. And so he understands that he needs to thoroughly impeach the Democratic candidate in order to win and he needs to arouse his base. And he thinks, I, I believe, that there are other voters out there or people who could vote who he hasn't yet reached. And so the more uh, he turns up the heat on some of this stuff, the more he can mobilize them. But I think what the whole outrageous gambit that he engaged in recently with uh, relative to the four women congressmen, uh, congresswomen is that they – he wants to make them emblematic of the Democratic Party. His message is very clear. The Democratic Party is too far, is far left. It's for open borders. And he's trying to disqualify the party itself and then impute that to whoever the candidate becomes in order to keep people who aren't 
sold on Trump or who are nervous about Trump, particularly Republicans or independents who are nervous about Trump, to make it hard for them to vote for the Democratic candidate. The other element is if there is, you know, I think he needs independent candidates in this race. You know, he needs Howard Schultz. He needs, uh, you know, third party candidates uh, so that there is a safety valve for people who he drives off of the Democratic nominee. And I think that's his strategy. And that is the kind of insight and analysis and interplay you will find on the Hacks on Tap podcast, <laughs> co-hosted by David Axelrod, who is a CNN contributor, and Mike Murphy, who is the only holder of a Las Vegas bet on the Buttigieg Weld Fusion ticket. Long <laughs> odds, not Detroit Tiger odds, but long odds. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com and now the spiel Let's talk about, and it's a very sexy, sexy subject, so don't accuse me of pandering, but it's also the right subject to talk about when we talk about septuagenarians. So you may have noticed that a lot of the faces and voices dominating the airwaves and news in recent days have been people in their 70s. The craggly, ruddy faces and their scratchy, phlegmy voices. No, no, this is not about aesthetics either verbal or visual. This is about competence. This is about communication. So let's go over some of the most powerful septuagenarians in America today. Nancy Pelosi, 79. Mitch McConnell, 77. Bernie Sanders, 77. Joe Biden, 76. Donald Trump, 73. Elizabeth Warren, 70. It's as if the future is the past. Some dismiss the old guard for their age, equating it with infirmity. The word for that is ageist. It is not necessarily the case that the aged have lost a step or that they soon will. Because even if they have, maybe their baseline was so phenomenal, they can, you know, drop a couple miles off their fastball and still dazzle us with their breaking stuff. Of course, if their breaking stuff is hips, that is a worry. So we tend to lump the old together as just the old, big swath of old. In a recent New Yorker piece, Dana Goodyear wrote of the Democrats that some, quote, believe the best person to stop Trump's reelection is another white man in his eighth decade. That does describe Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, the original top two candidates in the Democratic field. But Sanders has been overtaken by Elizabeth Warren. She's actually a white woman in her eighth decade, as I'm sure she would be thrilled to find herself described. By the way, the in the eighth decade thing, it's not inaccurate. I... I wouldn't say it's unfair. It does put a little mustard on the not really hard to comprehend concept of people who are in their 70s. And then again, we wouldn't use this way of phrasing ages if we were to describe Jeffrey Epstein's alleged victims as all being in their second decade. So maybe we should call it with the verbal tricks on this, the numbers section. Some 70-somethings seem 70-something. The best way to tell if age affects a person is to compare 
the person to their younger selves. Luckily, with many of these famous people, there's tape of them. So here was the 74-year-old Robert Mueller talking before Congress last week. Well, I would say uh, you, uh, I could, uh, the statement would be the, the, that you would not indict, and you would not indict because uh, under the OLC opinion, uh, a sitting president <coughs> excuse me, cannot be indicted. Okay, let us compare that to the same person as recently as 2013. We came to find out afterwards that the person who had called into that safe house was Al-Mithar, who was in the United States in San Diego. If we had had this program in place at the time, we would have been able to identify that particular telephone yes. number in San Diego. I, I'm almost out of time. I understand, but I ask indulgence just to finish because it's a critical point as to why we have this program and yes. how important it is. All right. If we had... Uh, the telephone number from Yemen, we would have matched it up to that telephone number in San Diego, got further legal process, identified Al-Midhar. One last point. It's not necessary. The details aren't important. The proof is in the alacrity, the verbal dexterity, the speed of speech, the emphasis. Donald Trump has always been a blowhard, but the words he was blowing didn't come as hard. Here, just a snippet from a 1999 Larry King interview. Never did I think my contributions would go toward helping me getting votes as president, okay? So, Never did I think we would have heard Donald Trump spinning such phrases. Just listen to the syntax and relative clarity, not the substance, but just the relative clarity of the argumentation, the construction. It's going to get bad unless we do something about this horrible, horrendous uh, deficit. You cannot continue to lose $200 billion dollars a year. It's going to be so bad that people will never, I, I, I really believe this could be much, much worse, unfortunately, than recession. This could be the step beyond. I hate to, I hate to use the word depression, but if we don't solve the 200 billion a year loss, which is exactly what we have, this country is going to have some very, very serious problem in the early 1990s. Now, I would like to point out that in fiscal year 2018, the deficit was 779 billion, the highest deficit in six years. So that's a fact, but these sets of words delivered to the media with, as ever, the whir of helicopters behind him last week after the Mueller hearing added up to, oh, I would say nothing more than gobbledygook. So there is no such a thing. He didn't have the right to exonerate. And, you know, it's very interesting. People mentioned exoneration. That was something where he totally folded because he never had the right to exonerate. And it was covered very well by Congressman Turner and put to a conclusion. We were, if you take a look at not only the report, beyond the report, take a look at not what he said, but what he was forced to say. And even your networks and your network and your network and your ne every one of these networks, they put up their hands. You know, we had a couple of cases with, actually we had about six cases where they asked our people, our representatives, television networks, please don't come in tonight. We're not going to be doing much on it. And the reason they're not, because it's over. Go ahead. There is no such a thing put to a conclusion, not only the report, beyond the report, not only what he said, what he was forced to say. <sighs> Trump's speech and, I guess, manner and just way of being definitely exhibits some cognitive decline. I don't think he would ever be anything as an overmatched, vain, failed president. 
but Trump's 73-ness very much informs his quality of thought and speech. Joe Biden really seems to have suffered a decline from the bouncy young senator who could once upon a time launch into a cogent stemwinder on the Senate floor or rip off a Neil Kinnock tail and still be home for dinner. Which brings me to the one septuagenarian who seems at least in his argumentation, to be the same person he ever was. And that is Bernie Sanders. Or rather, this is Bernie Sanders showing his sharpness a few months ago when asked on Face the Nation to comment on Joe Biden's praise for segregationist senators. And that it is one thing to work with people in the Senate, as you have to do, as every senator does, I do, with people who you have fundamental disagreements with. That's one thing. You do that. That's your job. But it's another thing to kind of extol that those relationships, you cannot be extolling people who really were part of a disgusting system that oppressed and terrorized millions of African-Americans in this country. Other than the hum of the audio and some of the specifics of the stats, you might not be able to figure out which year and which Bernie Sanders said this. You have a handful of people who control our economy. You have uh, maybe 2% of the population that owns one-third of the entire wealth of America, 80% of the stocks, 90% of the bonds. And these people have incredible power. Well, that was 38 years ago. Bernard Sanders interviewed by Phil Donahue on the Today Show, 1981. Here was Bernie sounding robust and rolling with challenging questions from Jake Tapper on State of the Union on CNN last Sunday. If in the case of insulin, people are dying right now. The cost of insulin has soared in recent years. You have three companies who control over 90% of the insulin market. Uh, One out of four people, we have 7 million people use insulin. One out of four are rationing that insulin. Uh, People are dying. Uh, There is strong evidence that there is price fixing, uh, that these companies simultaneously raise the prices at outrageous levels, far, far, far more than the cost of production. I don't know if it's because he has a remarkable consistency in the answers he always gives or that he started out as a 41-year-old, essentially septuagenarian, and then actually aged into being a literal septuagenarian. But Bernie Sanders is the one person on the public stage in his 70s who seems to be mentally unaffected by his age. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, seems sharp also. We don't have a lot of baseline to compare it to. But when Bernie Sanders started talking about the income inequality problem, Income inequality was just seven syllables that failed to excite. Maybe the fact is that now everyone's paying attention, so that sharpened his senses. Either way, I don't much cotton to the quality of Sanders' ideas, but his manner and syntax in making the arguments remain as spot on as when Eugene Debs originally voiced them. No, as when Bernie Sanders, a spry, young, grumpy hippie with owl glasses and corduroy sports coats, was the very embodiment of youthful vigor. Okay, maybe there's another explanation. Bernie Sanders was never young, so he doesn't seem to have gotten older. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. As Daniel enjoys the second week of his third decade, let's play him off with these youthful sexy horns. On what next in your feed right now, our sister show. The YouTube series about a left-wing blue pillar. You don't know what a blue pillar is? Well, she's kind of performing outreach to the alt-right, I guess. Someone has to do that. Her name's, or the show is called, ContraPoints. It's really interesting. The gist, we're in the second half of our first decade. The bottom of the first, if you will. We've already pulled the picture, and now it's just mop-up duty. Oomperu, depru, dupru. 
and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.